Hi, folks. This is an episode from The Backlog, which originally aired on August 1st of 2023. This conversation takes place in the context of a city of Santa Cruz with long histories of both environmentalism and nimbyism, where some of our most controversial questions are those around development. During this hour, three guests with similar values and goals explore where development and environmentalism are in conflict and when they are in harmony, as well as where environmentalism stops and nimbyism begins. I want to thank all three of the guests I had on for a really fascinating and good faith conversation, and I hope that anyone listening gets as much out of it as I did as a host. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. K-Squid. I'm Bodhi Shargell. I hope everyone has been enjoying the, not necessarily warm weather that we've been having recently, more baking weather that we've been having recently. I personally have been enjoying uh, the shade of some trees, and that's what we're talking about here today. I'm joined by uh, an illustrious panel of guests um, from my nearest to my farthest. We have... um, Jillian Greensight, who's a community organizer, a former Parks Commissioner for the City of Santa Cruz, Cindy Dawson, a delegate to our Democratic Central Committee, uh, and managed the Measure N campaign last election cycle, and then Zen and Juliet Crow, who's the founder of the UCSC Housing Coalition. Um, all three of my guests today have at some point in their lives served in a commissioner capacity for the city of Santa Cruz. Cindy is on the planning commission now, Zenon's on the transportation and public works commission. Um, and our topic today is the city of Santa Cruz's policy on, on heritage trees, which is something that's been thrown around a bit um, for, for years. It's been kind of a topic of our politics. It came up a lot last election cycle, um, especially with the campaign around Measure O. And I'd love to start off uh, with Jillian, maybe, if you'd be willing to just give us some some background on what the heritage tree thing is, um, how we got here, what the rationale behind it is. Yes, certainly. I arrived in Santa Cruz in 1975, and, uh, you know, I looked around and uh, the trees were particularly part of Santa Cruz's beauty and uh, prior to my coming or very uh, soon before then um, two neighborhood activists Carol De Palma and Sally De Girolamo uh, had put their heads together they both at the point were on city council and they uh, following a lot of cities although they were pioneers in our town created the basis for the current Heritage Tree Ordinance. And they were joined later, as we all know, the history in the early 80s with other progressives. And so the city passed the Heritage Tree Ordinance. And it basically is uh, protecting our large, usually large, uh, one, there's many definitions, I won't take the time to go into it, but size and stature is, is one of them. And Probably we were one of the few cities which also protected 
heritage trees on private property as well as public property. And, of course, that leads to a lot of, uh, you know, arguments because some people think what's on my property is my property, etc. But over the years, um, that ordinance has been in place ostensibly to protect trees from wanton destruction. Uh, the myth is that, oh, you never get a permit to cut down a heritage tree in the city of Santa Cruz, but that the data doesn't show that. We lose, with permit, about 30 of our large trees every uh, month. Uh, that's the latest data. So it's not incidental, the loss. And some people cut them down illegally, and the fines are, in my opinion, a bit of a slap on the wrist. But the ordinance is there, and I wish it was better publicised, but by and large you need a permit to cut down a heritage tree and there have to be good reasons and the three reasons are it's dead or dying or it's infested with insects that can't uh, and nothing can be done about it it's a danger they're all good reasons I wouldn't stand in the way of that and the one that has blooms uh, probably is the most ignored is that if a heritage if a sorry a uh, construction project cannot be altered to save a heritage tree. It can be cut down. Problem is, our planning department rarely, if ever, brings that up to developers who come with a plan. And so we have seen many of our heritage trees cut down when, with a bit of imagination, a project is supposed to be organised around that tree and I'll finish just by saying that was it 2015 the city tried to weaken its heritage tree ordinance uh, first of all by tinkering with that last criterion uh, you know that a project design if it cannot be altered they wanted to pop the word reasonably in there which is very subjective and weaken it take whole group species of trees out of protection well we took them to court and they lost. So our current ordinance is the one that has been in place for all these years. The question is, ordinances are only as good as those who are supposed to implement them, and therein lies the rub. Well, thank you. And maybe I'll pass it to, to Zenon, and I'd love to hear your thoughts just on why do you think that this um, this practice that the city has of going out of the way to, to protect larger trees or older trees why why do you think that's you know somewhat controversial and and what do you think are the you know practical impacts of the system um in the functioning of our city yeah for sure and thank you for having me on the show Bodhi. um i think there's a balance to be struck um i recognize that we are in a climate emergency and when we look at our policies in trying to construct denser more affordable housing for folks so people aren't commuting in long distances, aren't driving long ways, uh, when 69% of our emissions for the city of Santa Cruz are from transportation. Um, when we look at building new construction downtown where we're well served by transit, where we're well served by walkability, bikeability, it can get controversial when um, there may be a tree located, because if I remember correctly, the ordinance is anything over 14 inches in diameter is a heritage tree. Um, if as any tree 
present on the property that's over 14 inches, then what that means is uh, a lot of different things need to be prepared and requirements need to be met to prove that that development uh, is not able to happen without the tree being removed. And so when we look at this climate emergency and we look at the fact that, you know, when we look at our cities and we see that our per capita emissions are extremely low in our dense urban cores, but when we look at our suburbs, when we look at exurban sprawl, when we look at, you know, places like Houston, right, our carbon emissions are huge. And so basically what happens with the Heritage Tree Ordinance is a lot of the time it adds uh, a lot of years and a lot of costs to different projects, which ultimately means that growth that would have happened in a more climate-friendly manner and a more dense manner in our cities ends up happening in places like Antioch, ends up happening in places like the Central Valley because all of a sudden when people can't move to the city of Santa Cruz, well, they're going to move to Watsonville. And then what they're going to do is they're going to commute every single day in from Watsonville using their vehicles. And that's how in the end we end up with 69% of our emissions coming from transportation. And so... I really see a balance to be struck here between um, prioritizing the needs of wanting to build that climate-friendly housing within our dense urban centers, but also wanting to respect having the ability to preserve our trees in all places possible. And that's why I think Santa Cruz does a really great job in having the green belts and making sure we aren't developing places like the Pocono. We aren't developing in places like, you know, Wilder Ranch, right? Those are good things. But at the same point, the flip side of that coin is we need to be making sure that we are more climate-friendly in the areas that already are developed so we aren't causing you know, exurban sprawl problems elsewhere. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing up the the sort of trade-off that exists between dense housing and protecting um, trees and other the green spaces that are, are great sources of carbon sequestration. And I think that all of us can agree that sprawl is one of the leading causes of climate change, especially in places like California, where so much of our emissions come from come from transportation. Um, and I want to make sure that I know that we're going to have this larger conversation about, you know, approaches to environmentalism over the course of this hour. I'd love to, to give Cindy a chance to chime in. And as a, as a planning commissioner, someone who spent a lot of time on the issue of housing in that space and trying to make sure that housing developments are as good as possible um, based on, you know, affordability, environmental impact, all of those. What's your What's been your experience of how the concerns around heritage trees have impacted, you know, the the course of, of planned developments um, in recent years. Yeah, thanks for the question, Bodhi, and thanks for having me on. So m- my day job, um, I spend a lot of my day job in um, using nature-based solutions to address climate change, primarily um, at the land-sea interface, but that's expanding across California. So I think about this a lot, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, Everything we do uh, has trade-offs, and I think what we have to figure out as a society and as a community in Santa Cruz is kind of where that value lies. I also would say that, you know, I'm always skeptical of orthodoxy, and absolutely densification has benefits, but it also has costs. And, you know, I think when we think about heritage trees and urban green spaces in general, um, densification does overall, if you look at the data, usually result in the loss of those green spaces in the urban space. And, you know, there's all these co-benefits, right? Like I wrote them down. Um, You know, there's outdoor uh, recreation, um, which is linked with better health 
outcomes. There's air purification, there's biodiversity, there's cooling, there's carbon storage, there's um, water filtration, uh, there's noise reduction. So all of those things come with these trees and these urban green spaces. So we really need to understand you know, where we're going to put the value. And we also need to question some of these benefits that come with the orthodoxy of densification. And I, I do agree with Zenon that a balance is needs to be struck when we think about um, as we develop. You know, we know for a fact, and it, it's proven out is if you come to a planning commission meeting, densification is not going away. Um, but how we densify, um, whether we waive things like requirement for outdoor space and some of these new projects that are being built. Um, we need to think about that. Um, I just was also reading today um, about, you know, our state parks, our, our non-urban green spaces are being overwhelmed. And there's more and more data supporting that because we're building out in this hyper-dense way, people are seeking out this connection with nature. So I don't have the solutions. I think you know this, this balancing act is really tricky, but I think we need to be careful of orthodoxy on either side. And I think we need to continue to kind of poke the bear on both and, and try to figure out a Santa Cruz-specific solution um, for how we value these things. Yeah, and I just want to jump in there and say I totally agree on trying to find that or that balance between these two orthodoxies because I, by and large, don't believe that like we should be cutting down every tree. Obviously, no. There should be a urban healthy forest for us to be enjoying the benefits of shade. I mean, trees literally, in the end, can reduce sidewalk temperatures by up to 10 degrees, right? They provide cooling benefits based off the moisturize they give off. They provide so many other benefits that aren't even quantified that are just aesthetic benefits. I mean, I, I can tell you, I really enjoy walking down the tree with, you know, Walnut Street, right? But if I'm walking down Mission Street, it's, you know, a lot worse of an experience as a pedestrian and speaking as a transportation public works commissioner having that walkability and having that component of safety and feeling when you're traveling places is hugely important towards making sure that people are feeling safe and switching from their vehicles to more climate-friendly modes of transportation and additionally in, in going with that i also think there's a real discussion to be talked about like uh jillian was mentioning earlier you know the ordinance applies not just to uh, public lands but also to private lands and so i think there's one thing that's really spoken about our public lands and looking how we are currently utilizing the space on our streets and i can tell you you know you go anywhere and about 80 percent of the space of a road is dedicated to cars and maybe 20 percent is dedicated to a few trees here and there and a really narrow sidewalk and that sucks nobody it's not fun to walk on a sidewalk where you've got cars going 40 50 miles an hour next to you and you have all these issues and so i'd be challenging us to think about how we can better you know introduce foliage we better introduce urban foliage into our transportation corridors onto our streets i mean there's a lot of parking in the city and if you get rid of one parking spot in a block all of a sudden there's enough space for three trees and that's a huge improvement over what the alternative is and so i i really want to implore us to uh, agree that the, you know there's a balance to be struck and having that increase in densification in the areas where we should be building housing like our downtown um, doesn't have to come at a loss for our urban forestry and frankly it just it involves a reprioritization of our strategies as a city with our existing public spaces for anyone just tuning in this is talk of the bay uh, I'm Bodhi Shargell I'm joined by an esteemed panel of guests you just heard from Zen and Yulia Crow 
uh, Cindy Dawson is here, and I think Jillian Greensight had something to say up next. We're on the topic of heritage trees, and we're off to the races on that conversation. So, Jillian, go ahead. Yes, thank you. I I guess I'm not following Zenon's uh, comment about a balance, because right now, uh, no heritage tree has been saved uh, and a, a housing development lost, ever. There hasn't been. And so the balance is out of favour with respect to preserving heritage trees that could be preserved. I'll give you just one example. On Frederick Street, there's a housing development built uh, as you go towards Soak Hill. And when it was on the, just at the planning commission, I went out and looked, and there was a massive heritage tree right on the boundary of the property. And I looked at the plans, and the tree was nowhere near the housing that was being built. I think it's three or four stories. And so I asked, why, you, why is the heritage tree, because they, they were applying for a heritage tree removal, why is the tree being cut down? Oh, because developers like a clear lot. Well, the, first of all, that's a violation of the ordinance. Even if it were closer to the housing, you can be creative. But this was just wanton neglect of our heritage tree ordinance. And that has been true for every infilling development in our town for as long as it started to be infilling that the heritage trees are sacrificed when they don't need to be so there actually needs the pendulum needs to be balanced in the direction of somebody caring enough about them and that's the planning staff and as I say they don't coordinate well with the other departments and uh, just uh, In terms of planting trees, that is a fabulous idea. However, to plant a sapling is not the equivalent of a mature tree in terms of carbon sequestration. So I think we've got to uh, plant as many trees as possible, and all your ideas, I agree with them. However... Cutting down a heritage tree is a huge impact on every level, habitat, carbon release, etc. So I really think the balance has been shifted away from protecting our trees. And I won't go into the uh, trees being cut down for the library, but uh, that was another example. And I don't know the specifics of the project you're mentioning, but as you're describing it, I would agree with you. That sounds ridiculous. I don't think if there's a tree that's adjacent to the sidewalk that's not actually obstructing the building, I don't think having a clear-cut lot is necessarily a good reason to be removing that. So I'd be happy looking at that more. But I know you brought up the point about you know uh, not mature trees t- taking in a lot less carbon sequestration than mature trees, and that's 100% of really and very valid concern. Um, but I also know that you know when we are replacing trees, especially with dense housing that means that people aren't owning cars the carbon impacts of people not owning a car versus the carbon impacts of removing a tree are just not even close to comparison on average a tree uh, carbon sequestrates about 48 pounds of carbon a year and on average the average car emits about 10,000 pounds of carbon a year. So if one tree is torn down and replaced by one person who no longer drives because they can live next to their work, because they can take the bus downtown, because they can walk around, bike around, that automatically is, I can't even do the math, but a huge 
fold increase in decrease in the amount of carbon that is being produced in the environment. And so I, I really I want to challenge us to be thinking about environmentalism, not from uh, aesthetics, kind of like what we perceive, but from a data lens, from a, a lens that's really actually looking at the facts and the science and saying, OK, if we are really, truly serious about meeting our targets for carbon emissions, meeting our targets for making sure that our planet doesn't burn up, we have to find the best strategies to do that. And the best strategies are often building in dense urban centers. And I, I, w I do want to touch on one thing, because I remember... Um, there was a project that's uh, down at 130 Center Street that was uh, 233 units of student-oriented housing. Um, and I recall that in the report for that project, there was about a 60-page Arbor's report. And this is a project that's uh, located literally, you know, about like a five-minute walk from all the different bus lines in Santa Cruz that are going up to campus. It's a bunch of SRO units, which are basically units that are more catered towards students. Um, and and more able for people to be commuting back and forth from campus. And that project, which is, you know, replacing a Hertz dealership, right? That project had to spend a lot of effort and a lot of time. And I remember it was appealed by you for having issues with uh, traffic impacts and with the arborists. And so I, I just want to implore that, like, our, these things do have uh, unintended side consequences of delaying much-needed housing, not only for the fact that we have a huge housing crisis, but also for the fact that we have a climate crisis. And if that one person wasn't owning that car for a year, but instead now they're delayed another year because that projects delayed another year that's another year where okay maybe we're saving 48 pounds of carbon but we're still emitting another 10,000 pounds of carbon i have to correct the record there uh, go ahead uh, uh, 130 center street uh, a group uh, appealed that on the basic uh, uh, basis of the appeal was that the traffic as you know going towards the roundabout on center and front street the traffic study omitted to study weekend summer traffic. They base their figures just on weekday traffic. Well, that is patently absurd. And no, there was no 60-page Arborist report. It was two pages which noted that the straggly trees on the site were not worth saving, and I agreed with them. And so, no, I didn't ever bring up trees in that context. It was that with the traffic study that inadequate when you could mitigate for the traffic. We did not oppose the, the building, the housing at all, even though I could have another discussion another time about whether we should be uh, uh, building student housing, uh, but that's a different topic. However, to not study the traffic when it could be mitigated, we felt there was grounds for appeal, and it was only on that level. Cindy, I want to let you go ahead. You looked like you had something to add. Yeah, well, I, I did want to go back um, to another point, and then I'll, I'll, I'll jump into the fray here on 130 Center Street as well. Um, I, do, I do want to just point out, um, so Zenin, you mentioned that we should be looking at a data lens, but like anything, um, you know, 
if if you're being myop, like we need to look at all the data, and there are cascading effects for how we develop our built environment. Like I, I, I will go back to like the state parks and natural areas being overwhelmed because people are looking for connections. So there is this balance, and if we are looking at data, we need to look at all the data, not just sort of the data that confirms whatever um, you know. And and I'm not in any way saying that there aren't benefits to densification because there are, but there are also costs. And so I think we just need to all be very clear about what we're evaluating and and those costs as we have these kind of discussions. As far as 130 Center Street goes, um, you know, I, I do remember that planning commission meeting and I just want to, you know, second what Jillian said, the traffic study, um, and that, you know, this is not about traffic studies, but I will say that that is an issue on many developments. The traffic studies often don't look at the weekends. Um, most of us are bike riders here, um, and, and one, <laughs> besides the reason to do it for the climate, uh, one of the reasons is because you, you can't move around the town um, on the weekends in, in a car. And so when we're having these densification abutted against up these neighborhoods you know again I think it, it's it's actually looking at data that's gonna better inform our decision like that's really my day job is trying to bring science to decision makers all of the science um, across the spectrum of an issue and so I think when we we talk about the heritage trees benefits again um, you know the, the green space around those trees you know we talk about the trees sequestering a certain amount of carbon um, it's also the soil around those trees so it's it's the, the math gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. I spent a lot of time um, on the phone with climate scientists who do carbon accounting. It, it's pretty complicated, um, but there are co-benefits around urban green space that I think also need to not be lost in these conversations. And the other science nerdy thing I will bring to the table is there are more and more data being uh, accrued around that that's great that we want to plant trees, and we should certainly plant trees. It certainly doesn't hurt. But it seems uh, more and more clear from the data that the trees probably never will, one, reach the size of these heritage trees in the exact same location with the exact same conditions because the climate has changed, right? We are in, I fully agree with Zen, and we are in a climate crisis. We are in a housing affordability crisis, and I think the the rub here is you know how do you balance those two things right and, and there's more and more scholarship around that you can like start googling that kind of stuff like i have a stack of papers that i was just flipping through today like looking at how you try to balance this densification and some of those benefits um with the potential costs well i think this is quite the um intriguing and spirited conversation we're having here um Time has flown. We're already halfway through our hour, so I'm going to take a quick break and play some music. Um, I'd love to keep this going when we come back um, for anyone who's tuned in over the, the course of this uh, first segment. This is Talk of the Bay. We're talking about heritage trees in Santa Cruz and its larger implications on environmentalism, urban planning, and all of that. So stick around um, for, for uh, another half hour of that conversation. Um, stay tuned.
and welcome back to Talk of the Bay here on K-Squid. I'm Bodhi Shargell. I'm joined by my panel of honored guests, Jillian Greensight, Cindy Dawson, and Zen and Juliet Crow. I'm really enjoying the conversation that's been had here over the first half of the show. We're talking about heritage trees and their impact on politics and uh, planning and development in Santa Cruz. Um, and of course, this conversation informs uh, a broader philosophical discussion about environmentalism and urban planning. Um, the The word pendulum was spoken a few times over the um, over the course of our first half hour, uh, talking about whether the the pendulum of decision making in cases where uh, a, a heritage tree and a development come up against one another, whether we need to be favoring the the concerns of protecting trees more or the concerns of protecting the ease of, of building housing more. Um, and I guess that was presented as um, green space versus density. Um, and I'm really curious what our, our thoughts are here because I think we all, for the most part, agree that building denser housing is um, mostly a good thing when it comes to, to climate policy so that people can uh, produce less emissions from transportation. And we also agree that urban forests and urban green spaces are crucial. So I, I'm wondering if we think that it's a question of development versus green space or if we think that there's a path forward that produces more dense housing as well as more opportunities to have green space in our cities. Um, Jillian, go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you. Thoughtful question. I think that we have to tackle the question of um, who are we building for? Uh, because we aren't building for our uh, low-income workers uh, who I know quite a few families uh, who are leaving because the rents are going up. Uh, you know, it's been said, and I think it's accurate, you can't build your way into affordability. And so this dense building, uh, infilling, is expensive building. And the uh, it, we don't have rent control, apart from, you know, whatever the state has, uh, that keeps failing. Uh, 80 to 90% of the apartments or the units that are being built are too small for families. There are some exceptions. And the average rent is three to 4000 a month. Uh, the below-market-rate ones are tied to the area median income, which keeps rising as wealthy people buy up for either second home or want to move to Santa Cruz, there's a bottomless bit of desire to live in Santa Cruz. And so the, even the below market rate units rise in who can, what level of income you can have to get one of those. So I think we have to have a little bit more data-driven conversation about who who will benefit from this density and the city will not supply, even though I've been asking, not just me, for decades of, all right, you've built this housing. Uh, uh, 10.10 Pacific was an example. That was touted as workforce housing for police, firemen and uh, women and teachers. Well, uh, is it? 
has it been occupied by those uh, people or who has occupied it. And the same goes for all the other housing that is being built. So uh, first of all, I think that this densification uh, is not just an, an unexamined good the assumption that people living near, I think we have a fairly inadequate public transportation system where somehow most of them get out of their cars, I think is a, just a statement. There's no data to show that. And uh, the cost is dri- the cost is driving people away. So I think that people who are really into dense housing uh, need to be able to step back and answer some questions about uh, why is the cost, the value, the artificial value of housing rising, who's buying them up and in whose interest do they serve? Because we're losing also a lot in terms of the increase in population. Well, I, I, I think that all of us here are pro-affordable housing. We wish that the housing being built was affordable at a higher rate. I think we all support rent control. I think we all supported Measure N, and we all support social housing. Um, So I I guess I'd like, just if you could clarify really quickly, do you think that um, density and green space are are necessarily opposed to each other, or do you think that those two things can can both be achieved uh, at the same time, and that they could even contribute to one another? Well, it depends what you mean by green space. I mean, we have a, the green belt, and when that went to the ballot, nobody talked about, well, the flip side of protecting the green belt will mean you might have a eight-storey building next to you. That side of the equation was completely omitted. Uh, and so everyone, you know, mum and apple pie voted for it. Uh, so if you mean green space like preserving a, a tree on an inner-city lot versus not... um, Parks, wilderness, um, or street trees, all of that. Do you think that those are uh, in contrast to dense housing? Well, I think uh, Cindy raised a good question about the use, the impact on open space with people who don't even have a little, you know, area to go in in their backyard. Uh, So that's of concern, the impact. I mean, we're talking increase in population. When I started work at the university, I worked there for 30 years, 5,000 students. There are now close to 20,000. They want to go to close to 30. All everybody has to be housed. People want to live in Santa Cruz. So it's not just infilling. It's how much does that increase of population affect a town that has streets that were built for a you know a sort of a horse and buggy era, and uh, limits geographic limits, and a greenbelt that could be impacted. So I don't I don't really see. The question is what is the impact of the increase in population largely wealthy with all the toys they bring on the the green belt we have left which is really being impacted if you look at the uh, mountain biking and the uh, you know the electric bikes etc it is there is an impact there so i don't see it as this or that because <laughs> frankly i don't see any way that uh, one would stop the 
uh, infilling. Uh, if we decided to spread out a bit, uh, that's a political issue that I don't think would uh, be favoured. So we've got a dilemma. I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think it's either or at this point. So if I could jump in here, I think we're, so as we're all in agreement that densification is good for the climate, full stop. We, we know that when people are living in uh, places that they're more likely to be able to walk to their store, they're more likely to be able to bike to their job, all the rest, people are emitting less carbon emissions, and uh, we know that that is a good thing. Um, I kind of want to unpack some of the things that you were mentioning in terms of related to who we're building housing for and related to affordability um, and about the cost of construction um, and such. And so I, I want to examine, you know, if we're, we're talking about the cost of construction, we're talking about the rents that the absurd rents that these market rate places are providing we have to ask well why does it cost that much to build in the first place and in no short order it doesn't hurt it doesn't help when we have to go through a lot of different process to get housing in places that we know are good places for housing next to our transit centers next to our transit bus stops next to campus and so when we talk about additionally when we're building more housing you know for every 100 units of market rate housing there's 60 to 80 units of affordable housing that becomes available because of migration chains of folks that are moving from less expensive housing to more expensive housing and then their housing becomes available and someone moves from their house into that house and so on and so forth until more affordable units are become available and frankly i think i also agree you know building more at, and that's it is not going to solve the affordability crisis nor is it going to solve the housing crisis we do need rent control we do need social housing we need more affordable housing and we need more market rate housing we need everything and so i think when we talk about this affordability and we talk about how uh, the green belts and how you know, you're saying there wasn't a discussion about well, if we're going to do the green belts, there's not going to be, there's going to all of a sudden have to be eight-story buildings in Santa Cruz. That's right. I mean, there is going to have to be eight-story buildings in Santa Cruz because what is the alternative? The alternative is people move to Watsonville and commute in every single day and commit commute and cause 69% of our carbon emissions to come from transportation. The alternative is that we have the literally most expensive rental market in the entire United States. That is the facts now. We have the most expensive market rental market in the United States. And we talk about in the 1970s, right, when we stopped all this growth so that we could stop all these side effects. Well, this is one of the side effects. One of the side effects of not building housing in the past 50 years means that all of a sudden people like me have to live with an unordained amount of roommates in order to find a place to live in the city. And people like students are living out of their vehicles. People are literally homeless going to a UC, which is ridiculous. And the university should be building more housing to provide for that. But also the city should be acknowledging its shared responsibility in contributing to this crisis by not building any housing in the first place. I think it's insane the fact that a house that is located directly next to the campus costs about $3.5 million when we have students that are commuting in from um, the east side students that are commuting in from Live Oak that are trying to get an education at the university. And so, you know, when we talk about these issues, we talk about affordability, it is true and in fact a supply and demand issue is an issue where there has not been enough housing and i admit santa cruz you will try and build as much housing as possible and there will always be an infinite demand for housing in santa cruz and that's why 
we have to make sure that places like San Jose, places like Silicon Valley, places like San Francisco, every other place where people are commuting from here to also have to be doing their fair share of housing because it, we can't, and which also means that we can't be ignoring all co- our culpability in this crisis as well. So, you know, I think I think we do have evidence to point to the unintended consequences of not doing densification, um, and that's what we're at today, having the most homelessness per capita of the entire country and the highest rental rates of the entire country. Those two things things are very obviously intrinsically linked. Yeah, I would love to jump in here. I, I don't want to go too far down the Yimby NIMBY debate, but I will say that all the data that Zenon just cited, there is data to the contrary. So do your homework. The, the, those are not um, an unassailable facts. So, but I will say that, um, you know, I, I do agree that I think we all think about who the housing is being built for, or we should be thinking about that. And costs are a real thing. And we know that a market-driven uh, approach to housing is going to lose socioeconomic diversity. Mm-hmm. And that's just a fact. Socioeconomic diversity drives all kinds of other diversity pick your word, right? And so as we continue to lose socioeconomic diversity in Santa Cruz, we're losing the the culture of Santa Cruz um, that, that so many people are drawn to. Um, and if we don't find a solution to address that loss of socioeconomic diversity, which is going to be interventionist, it is going to take government intervention to to intervene into the market to ensure that we don't lose the socioeconomic diversity. There are communities all over the world who are doing that and have figured this out. We don't have to make up how we would do that. Um, We need to create subsidies and incentives to build affordable housing. I think Jillian's point about our um, area median income and how that trickles down from the federal government to the state government and uh, delineates our housing categories for very low, low income um, cannot be overstated as well because people think, oh, we're building low income housing. Great. You know, any service worker can afford that. In Santa Cruz, you need to make 80K a year to afford that house and not pay a third of your income on that house. And so um, it, it all sounds good. And, um, you know, I, I don't encourage people to go too far down the rabbit hole because it can drive you crazy. But, you know, we need to understand what these words mean um, when we talk about affordability and we look at at, at housing developments, um, especially housing developments to take advantage of state laws that like density bonus. And that so, you know, everybody says, oh, we have 20% affordability in Santa Cruz. Well, not if a density bonus is applied, right? And no. so you get 100 units, you know, you will you can get a 50% density bonus and build 150 units, and then 13 of those will end up being, um, you know, affordable. Right. right, and then you know what's the ultimate 13%. goal? Thirteen percent is the goal to have a percentage of affordable housing or the most total affordable units that we can possibly get. I mean, the fact is, then if we're building a development that's a hundred percent, you know, market has eighty percent market rate, twenty percent affordable, they get a density bonus that then ends up meaning they still have the exact same number of affordable units, but more market rate units. All right. it means is that people that are moving into Santa Cruz, which we 
can't stop. There's no way we're going to be stopping people from moving to Santa Cruz. It just means instead of moving here and displacing an existing resident from an existing home, they're moving into a new home that didn't exist in the first place. And it's it's not causing the same displacement issues that well, we experience yeah, today. It, and we can it, see it, that our result of Santa Cruz, you know, building 0.37 new homes for each new household over the past decade. Like we've literally built less than a house for every new person that is coming into the city of Santa I'm Cruz. I'm not that's, saying we don't need to build. Yeah. And, what, what I'm saying well, is what are we building for? And, and and I totally take issue with that there is not displacement issues for market rate housing build. There There's a stack of literature that says there absolutely is displacement issues. Y- yes, you will get new people into Santa Cruz that the people who actually have made their home here will be displaced because they can't afford those units. And so you have something going in at the end of Pacific that's 205 market rate units. There's not one affordable unit Right, because in that they donated a land next door, which is that, now going gonna, to 100 percent. I'm going to butt in, butt in here, and I project. apologize, but the conversation of how we get affordable housing <laughs> will not be solved in the last 10 minutes of this show, um, and and we do only have a, a little bit of time left. And I want to bring it back to the the question of trees and environmentalism. And there was something that I wanted to to read out that I've been thinking about in preparation for this, um, and 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 hopefully that can inform our our conversation as we wrap up here. So. In 1972, a bit before my day, um, the Supreme Court uh, heard a case called Sierra Club v. Morton, where the Sierra Club sued um, to stop the Walt Disney Corporation from building a a massive resort, much bigger than Disneyland, um, in California's Mineral King Valley, which is this pristine, beautiful area of, of wilderness in the Sierras. Um, and the suit was rejected um, because the, the majority on the court um, believed that the Sierra Club didn't have standing to sue. It, it wasn't their place to file a lawsuit against the development. And um, Justice Douglas, who's one of the, in my opinion, very few cool Supreme Court justices in our history, who was a, a massive environmentalist, um, wrote a famous dissent in the case where he argued that the environment itself or trees or rivers should have standing to sue for their own protection. And I'm going to read just a bit of this. Um, This is quoting um, Douglas's dissent in in the case. Um, The critical question of standing would be simplified and also put neatly in focus if we fashioned a federal rule that allowed environmental issues to be litigated before federal agencies or federal courts in the name of the inanimate object about to be despoiled, defaced, or invaded by roads and bulldozers, and where injury is the subject of public outrage. Contemporary public concern for protecting nature's ecological equilibrium should lead to the conferral of standing upon environmental objects to sue for their own preservation. This suit would therefore be properly labeled as Mineral King v. Morton, rather than Sierra Club v. Morton. that that's the that's the quote and i'm reading this reminded of the heritage tree system that we have in santa cruz so i'd love to hear from from any of y'all do you agree with what douglas is saying here that environmental objects deserve rights in the same way and and do you think that the system that we have here in santa cruz is serving that idea and, and do you think that it's working in a in a productive way well, I'll, ju- I'll jump in first. Uh, I believe it's New Zealand and there might be some other countries that have all right, 
already recognise, you know, rivers and other natural features uh, have rights. I mean, uh, it, it, it sounds good, but it's always it's going to go through human beings to be, you know, argued over. I think the bottom line is that as a society, we do not care enough about uh, the features of our planet which sustain us. Uh, we treat them as extractive resources and uh, that if that doesn't change uh, dramatically um, all of our buildings to get people out of their cars is only going to be a tiny picture of a very disastrous puzzle and I'll give you one example in the city of Santa Cruz when they take a, a, a let's say it's a meadow or an open space with trees and they're going to punch in roads and clear it, etc. They call it improvements. And they do that over and over again, urbanising a, 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 a natural, as much as it can be natural, place uh, where other critters live is an improvement. So I usually, when I'm writing, you know, point out, no, it's a change. It's an urbanising change, but it is not an improvement. And I'll just share one bit of data uh, that I read recently in a research paper that the amount of carbon that is released is from cutting down uh, trees globally for agriculture, for cattle rearing, for building, whatevers, uh, is three times the carbon impact of the global aviation industry. Now, that is a massive concern. And when you come bring it down to local Santa Cruz, uh, as I started with, that an average of 30 heritage trees are cut down with permit each month in the city of Santa Cruz. We're not talking about the unincorporated area where they don't have a heritage tree ordinance except in the very narrow coastal zone. So, y yes, I think that if we could switch our consciousness to what you just read as that, that uh, um, that statement, uh, we would be much further ahead in um, the sort of the, the race against the clock with climate change. Yeah. Zenon and Cindy, I want to give y'all the opportunity to give your thoughts, and then whoever goes second will probably have the last word here. Well, I'll go first, and I'll give Zenon the last word. So I, I totally, um, I, that was great, uh, bringing that Supreme Court case up, Bodhi. I think it really kind of frames the last part of our discussion here, but you know, uh, really to all of our detriment, like our big brain has given us um, kind of, you know, lording over this planet, right? Um, mostly for the worse. <laughs> but the question is, it really comes down to value judgment. Sen and I were going back and forth on affordable housing. Um, Jillian just brought up how other countries have actually, you know, said that natural features have their own set of inalienable rights. Right? These are all value judgments, and so I think that you know, if we don't change, sort of how we look at our natural environment and we don't I just find it completely mind-boggling that in, in an age that we are with 
with technology and, and, and literally endless amounts of information um, and, and, and technology that can allow us to get data, um, that, that we still are making these decisions in, in very um, myopic ways. And we're not looking holistically about how to solve these really challenging problems. And so I would just say that I think we need to um, broaden out our our focus and um, think about how we're going to make these decisions and the cascading effects that happens when we make these decisions. Like if we're densifying here, how does that cascade, not just in the region, but, you know, across the state, across the nation. Um, and, and, and we can do that. We're just choosing not to. So that would be my hope for us moving forward in Santa Cruz is to really look um, broadly at these decisions, um, question and poke at orthodoxy on all sides. And, you know, come up for a Santa Cruz solution. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I, I think I really agree with the idea that I, I, there's, a, there's a broader discussion, I think, that's being had here. Um, there's a discussion about having two different types of environmentalism. There's preservationist environmentalism and there's climate change environmentalism. And in many ways, they overlap, but there are some key areas that they differ. Uh, preservationist environmentalism, I would classify as the environmentalism of the 1970s that we know that we can look back towards that was about preserving our natural environment. It was about stopping exurban sprawl. It was like passing the green belts in Santa Cruz. It was about making sure we can clean up our waterways, clean up our airways, make sure we aren't doing things like Mineral King, right? And those were all very good things that happened. But a lot of those ethos that came out of that wasn't just about you know preserving our existing environment, but it was also about preventing growth and preventing change. And we know that entering climate change we need to fundamentally restructure how we live and how our entire society functions. And a lot of the time, the same folks that have made a lot of really great advances in the 1970s are now preventing the very things that we know will be solving our carbon emission and our climate change issues. I mean, the Sierra Club sued and stopped offshore wind, or haven't stopped, but sued offshore wind farms in Morro Bay. Our former county supervisor, Gary Patton, sued and stopped high-speed rail from happening on the peninsula and from allowing them to have passing tracks. I mean, these are objectively, and sued, by the way, under the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, and so I think these are objectively good things that we know will help with our carbon emissions, but they involve change. And change is hard. And so we've seen that there's been an antithesis between the idea that, hey, maybe actually we should be growing, but we should be growing in a way that's reducing our per capita emissions and not actually cementing in our existing inequalities and our existing existing issues with our built environment well i would give some cool zinger to wrap up the conversation but i don't think i have any i think that i'm gonna spend the next few days um going back on the the, the two-week archive uh which you can find at ksqd.org and listening to everything that's been said here because this has been a fantastic discussion and i want to thank all three of you um jillian cindy and zenon um, that that's it. That's all the time we have today for our show. This has been Talk of the Bay. I've been Bodie Shargell, um, and we're left with a lot to think about. Um, but thank you all for your participation. Thank you, Adrian, for helping out on production as always, and thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>